Welcome to Navara Live on an awkward day for Matt Hancock. A hundred thousand WhatsApp messages have been leaked to the Daily Telegraph involving Matt Hancock, various government ministers and advisors from the COVID pandemic. They're billing this as the lockdown files. They think it's incredibly damaging for Matt Hancock. We're going to go through the messages um, and tell you what we think. I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm good. I think this episode should be called It Goes Down in the DMs because like the scandal of it all. I love stories like this. I mean, even though they're representative of a much, of a really crap situation, but nothing like some elite on elite violence. Let's get straight on to that first story. Matt Hancock has suffered the indignity of having thousands and thousands of his WhatsApp messages leaked to the Telegraph. They were leaked by the journalist Isabel Oakshot and are between Hancock and other ministers over the course of the pandemic and other advisors, I should say. The Telegraph have written the messages up basically as an expose of Hancock. So they think this is really bad for him. And this is their most damaging claim. So they say the lockdown files. Matt Hancock rejected expert advice on care home testing. WhatsApp messages reveal. Huge leak reveals conversations from 100,000 texts showing how then health secretary did not follow Sir Chris Whitty's tough line. So the allegation is he ignored expert advice. Now we can read the first few paragraphs from that story. So the Telegraph write, Matt Hancock rejected the chief medical officer's advice to test for COVID all residents going into English care homes, leaked messages reveal. Professor Sir Chris Whitty told the then health secretary early in April 2020, about a month into the pandemic, that there should be testing for all going into care homes. But Mr Hancock did not follow that guidance, telling his advisers that it muddies the waters. They go on. Instead, he introduced guidance that made testing mandatory for those entering care homes from hospital, but not for those coming from the community. Prior to the guidance, care homes had been told that negative tests were not required, even for hospital patients. The guidance stated that those coming in from the community should be tested. That was eventually only um, introduced on the August the 14th. So the guidance stating that those coming in from the community should be tested was eventually introduced on August the 14th. And then the Telegraph, at this context, between April the 17th at April the 17th and August the 13th, 2020, a total of 17,678 people died of COVID in care homes in England. So the implication there being Matt Hancock ignored the advice. Lots of people went into care homes who weren't tested. And as a consequence, you know, it seems to be suggesting you know, 17,000 people died. So this would be very, very serious um, if the allegations do stack up. Let's now look at the sequence of messages they use to justify these incendiary claims. Um, they're all from a conversation had on the 14th of April between Hancock and one of his advisors, Alan Nixon. Now they concern what advice would be included in a COVID and social care action plan, which was due to be published the following day. Um, so the first message, um, we're shown is this. It's from Matt Hancock. Chris Whitty has done an evidence review and now recommends testing of all going into care homes and segregation whilst awaiting result. This is obviously a good positive step and we must put into the dock. So that's Matt Hancock saying Chris Whitty is advising um, that we test everyone going into care homes. He's pleased with this and he thinks it should be in the document that they're going to publish the next day on COVID and care homes. However, by the end of the day, that position had changed. So instead, by the afternoon, it was only the case that testing would be done on those entering care homes from hospitals and not from the community, including, of course, staff. 
Now, this is a message from one of Hancock's advisors. This was sent at 6.23 p.m. on the same day. So Alan Nixon says, I wasn't in testing meeting. Just to check, officials are saying your steer is to remove the commitment to testing on admission to care homes from the community, but keep commitment to testing on admission to care homes from hospital. Is that right? And then Alan Nixon, sort of 25 minutes later, messages again saying this, update, we can say in the doc that it's our ambition to test everyone going into a care home from the community where care homes want. And then in brackets, in the coming weeks is the suggested time frame I've been told. Matt Hancock then responds to that message saying this, fine, tell me if I'm wrong, but I would rather leave it out and just commit to test and isolate all going into care from hospital. I do not think the community commitment adds anything and it muddies the waters. Have that for a Q&A response. So does this prove that Matt Hancock ignored official advice? That, of course, is the claim being made by The Telegraph, but Matt Hancock has pushed back. So this is from one of his spokespeople. Having not been approached in advance by The Telegraph, we have reviewed the messages overnight. The Telegraph intentionally excluded reference to a meeting with the testing team from the WhatsApp. This is critical because Matt was supportive of Chris Whitty's advice, held a meeting on its deliverability, told it wasn't deliverable, and insisted on testing all those who came from hospitals. The Telegraph have been informed that their headline is wrong and Matt is considering all options available to him. This major error by Isabel Oakeshott and The Telegraph shows why the proper place for analysis like this is the inquiry, not a partial agenda-driven leak of confidential documents. Isabel Oakeshott's agenda, according to Hancock's people, is to cast doubt on the wisdom of lockdowns. Matt Hancock himself hasn't appeared on the media today to answer questions on the leak. One of his allies has, though. Lord Bethel was a health minister under Matt Hancock, and he fielded questions from Nick Robinson on Radio 4. A decision was taken that day, and it was changed after a meeting. What these messages reveal is that the chief medical officer says all people going into care should be tested. Matt Hancock appears to agree with that. But later in the day, after what he says is a crucial meeting, he changes his view. You're, you accept that version of events, I think. Why did he change his view? Well, he changed his view because there was an operational meeting to talk about how you were actually going to test people and how many actual tests we had. The reality was there was a very, very limited number of those tests. Now, people who were coming out of hospitals had the highest rates of transmission. They were the people who had the highest risk of having the disease because there was a lot of nosocomial infection from other patients within the hospitals. So it was sensible and right to prioritise those, um, uh, those coming into social care first. And we were then going to move on to covering absolutely everyone, which is what we went on to do. And it was weeks, weeks later, months later. It took weeks to scale up our testing. The, the, the thing that held us back was not a dispute about the clinical advice. It was simply the operational ability to deliver tests. And that's would why Chris we Would Chris Whitty agree with that? Were you oh. in the meeting, this crucial meeting? Was Chris Whitty in this crucial meeting? I, uh, I don't have... Well, this, is, this is the flaw in this whole debate. We only have a few scrappy, gossipy WhatsApps. This is not how government oh, is run. It's how he did his business. No, it's not. Absolutely not, Nick. I absolutely reject that. Business was done very formally with meeting notes, with policy recommendations, with a box. Uh, that is how the machinery government works. But there's the thousands of these messages. I'm not going to bore the listeners who are reading them. I've got one of yours here in which there is detail of the sort you would expect to be put in formal meetings. Long paragraphs of detail. 
But that Nick, that, uh, little pieces of informal chat between people is very common. Getting me onto this program took a very many WhatsApp messages. That's how people work these days. And but the it? formal decision-making is done through well, let's official go to the paperwork. And we okay. don't have that in front of us. Let and that's why this partial uh, glimpse into the decision-making is so unfortunate, because it gives a misleading impression. So that was Lord Bethel, who appears in, in some of the messages. We'll be showing you those in a moment. I mean, what do I think about this? I, I have to say, I mean, there are some messages which we'll show you later, which I think look very bad for Matt Hancock. I think the circumstances in which these were leaked, as we'll talk about in more detail later, are rather humiliating for Matt Hancock. I actually think with this particular story, which has led the BBC and led, led, led all the news platforms all day, is a little bit over-egged. I, I don't think the WhatsApp messages that The Telegraph has shown us really prove that Matt Hancock ignored medical advice because it was often the case during the pandemic that the, you know, the chief medical officer, their job was to give advice about the spread of COVID and, and the medical issues. Their advice wasn't to say what was operationally possible. So it seems perfectly plausible to me that there was a meeting with Chris Whitty. He said it would be a good idea um, to, you know, from a pandemic control perspective, to be testing everyone as they go into care homes. And it seems perfectly plausible that then Matt Hancock went into another meeting and with the people who talked about the, the capacity for testing at the time, and they said, oh, sorry, we can't do this. Then the whole muddies the water thing, I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be a reference to not testing people going into care homes, but rather, should we include in a advice document that in the future we will be encouraging care homes to test everyone, but at the moment we don't have tests. Now, potentially that would have been more honest to include in there. I do think that, I mean, as we talked about a lot of the time, the government now, or Matt Hancock and the people who were in government at the time, are very keen to say, um, look, the issue was capacity. The, the issue was all that we struggled to do stuff. Back back in the day, back, back in the, uh, the period when they were talking about these things at press conferences, they often tried to suggest, oh, no, we don't need to test here for this reason, when the actual reason was they couldn't. So, you know, there's mixed messages going on. Potentially, it wasn't as honest as it could be. But I don't think um, the idea that Matt Hancock ignored Chris Whitty and therefore a load of people died is something that these messages necessarily bear out. Obviously, we don't know the full story, but there is a a a, a, a believable idea that you know what was desirable and what was operationable. That there was a gap between those two things. It doesn't change the fact that throughout the course of the pandemic, however, there was a broader trend of uh, the government and specifically Boris Johnson, um, as well as Matt Hancock, ignoring uh, health advice and Witty's advice on things that were actionable. For example, you know, we know that Britain uh, spent took a very long time to go into lockdown uh, and consistently delayed it, which meant that we had to have much more uh, stringent and long-lasting eventually, like intense, really intense lockdowns, much more so than a lot of other parts of Europe, because there was this consistent need to kind of this consistent um, impulse to ignore medical advice in the favor in favor of what was seen as you know political point scoring around you know not liking kind of lockdowns in general. Um, so that actually more broadly is quite true. In this instance, there is you know it seems feasible to me that you know the deployment of um, te like tests on this scale may have not been possible at that time. However, what I would therefore ask is why wasn't it possible? Why wasn't it operationally possible at that time? Could it have had anything to do with the fact um, that uh, the COVID contracting scandal meant that between, I think it was January 2020 and December 2021, 
a lot of contracts for tests were handed to Randox, which is a major um, pharmaceutical company, without any uh, sort of compet without any competition and without the adequate due diligence required to make sure that they would be able to provide um, the the scale of tests that would be needed in the time that they would be that they would be necessary. Um, and so it kind of touches on these two broader truths, which is that. A, there were times when it absolutely was viable for the government to follow medical advice and they chose not to. And that caused, you know, numerous excess deaths. And also the other fact of COVID contracts and the scandal around cronyism there did mean that um, on an operational level, the COVID response was not as uh, effective as it could have been because of corruption. We don't know if this instance in particular was an example of that. Um, but those broader, I think one of the reasons why this has maybe struck such a nerve is because it feels like there's some kind of evidence for something that we broadly already knew to be true. Um, and I guess whether or not, you know, those broader things are true and the impact of them is going to come out in the inquiry. So I think it's one of those weird things where it's like the broad kind of like thesis of it, I sort of think, I think is is true in that I think medical advice was ignored at times when it shouldn't have been. In this instance, I think there's there's definitely a possibility that that, that wasn't the case here, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's also very relevant that the paper who is deciding how to editorialize these WhatsApp messages has a very clear agenda here, right? So so I doubt it's going to be the case that, you know, that they have access to lots of messages with Boris Johnson. It was Boris Johnson who especially um, in the second lockdown massively delayed that and lots of people died as a result. I, I assume in this cache of, of WhatsApp messages, there are some incriminating stuff about him, but I'm not sure if the Telegraph are going to publish that because I think the reason they call it the lockdown files is because they're against lockdowns. They want this to make Matt Hancock look bad and because he was fairly amenable to the idea that we needed lockdowns, et cetera, even if he was fairly incompetent in other ways. Um, as I say, I, I don't think this is the smoking gun. I do think there are other messages which do make Hancock look very bad, which we're going to go on to now. Cast your mind back to the 1st of May, 2020, when at the height of the first lockdown, the then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, announced this. At the beginning of last month, at this podium, I set a goal that anyone who needs a test should get a test. And that as a nation, we should achieve 100,000 tests per day by the end of the month. I knew that it was an audacious goal, but we needed an audacious goal because testing is so important for getting Britain back on our feet. I can announce that we have met our goal. The number of tests yesterday on the last day of April was 122,347. This unprecedented expansion in British testing capability is an incredible achievement. Now, we always knew that was a pretty ridiculous claim. And that was principally because the 122,000 figure Hancock had sort of announced there, that included tests sent out. So tests sent to people, not tests actually done. But the messages released in the lockdown files ju show just how ridiculously Hancock and his team behaved while trying to meet this arbitrary target which they set themselves. Now, take this exchange. It's between Matt Hancock and a health minister on the 27th of April, three days before the target deadline. So it's James Bethel, Lord Bethel. I spoke to Doug, and Doug is the chief exec of Amazon UK. 
He says he has some more kits that he could send out on Thursday. I've asked, blanked out, if there could possibly please be enough lab capacity to process these. That's the bottleneck. I'll keep you updated, but one for you to mention if you're speaking to blanked out and feel like gently leaning on that point. Then Matt Hancock replies, if only 20% are being returned, then we can send many, 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 many more out. And then James Beffel says, that's true, since they count from the moment they're sent. I'll prod nicely. Can you please prod too? Now, a normal person, you know, someone who cared about COVID responses would have seen that 20% figure and thought, oh, shit, only 20% are being returned. There's some kind of problem here. We need to make sure people get better at sending back tests. But rather, instead of that, Matt Hancock's response was, oh, only 20% are being returned. That's great. That means we can send more out even when we don't have lab capacity. And we can um, include that in our final 100,000 figure. So this does not look to me um, like people who are taking the pandemic particularly seriously, but people who are rather desperate um, to get the headlines they want. It doesn't look good for them. Um, also, uh, in the run-up to that press conference we just showed you, and we've got an exchange between Matt Hancock and George Osborne. Um, he was then editor of the Evening Standard. So Matt Hancock says, I need to call in a favour tomorrow. I currently have 22,000 spare slots tomorrow at my drive throughs Hence, I've extended eligibility today. Demand just isn't there. This is obvious good news about spread of virus, but hard for my target. So I really could do it with a testing splash. Can we make this happen? George Osborne, then editor of the Evening Standard, replies, Yes, of course. All you need to do tomorrow is give some exclusive words to the Standard, and I'll tell the team to splash it. You're almost there. Send the words to me by 8 a.m. tomorrow. Message to London, get someone to brief Joe Murphy too. And Joe Murphy was the political editor of the Evening Standard. Then in the morning, the following morning, Matt Hancock sends you know his statement to the Evening Standard. I'm not going to bother um, reading that to you. He says, thank you. This is the quote. He's also sent to Joe. And George Osborne says, great. And this is the weirdest one. Matt Hancock then says, now I'll find out how strong the bonds of loyalty are. And George Osborne says, you'll make the front page, but not as big as 10 minutes ago. Hancock, fair enough. And you'll like the editorial. Well done, says George Osborne and Matt Hancock in capitals. I want to hit my target. And George Osborne, I gathered. Now, as I say, I think I'll find out how strong the bonds of loyalty are is uh, the, I suppose, most damning in a way um, phrase there. It's presumably a reference to the fact that Matt Hancock used to be an aide to George Osborne when he was chancellor right? Um, and Or when he was shadow chancellor and then was also in his department and when he was chancellor. So this is not suggestive of a healthy democracy, right? You've got uh, a health minister who is sending messages to an editor of the, the paper in London with the widest circulation and then getting whatever he wants on the front of the newspaper. Now you can say, look, this was a, a public health message, um, but it seems to me if you look at it in the context of all of these other um, messages we've seen. This is much more about reaching an arbitrary target than it is about actually tackling COVID-19. That's why he sent that message then, not on any other day in the month or, or the month afterwards. And one more exchange um, on the 100,000 target was this, which I think is pretty damning. So this is from Duncan Selby, Chief Executive of Public Health England. PHE sends the Chief Medical Officer and GCSA, a serology report each Thursday. On the numbers for yesterday, our contribution to Pillar 1 was Public Health England Labs, 4,819, Roche, 13,723, and Port and Serology, 1,072. Now, Roche is a 
German testing company. So this guy's saying, look, 13,000, this is great. This can go towards that target. Matt Hancock says, amazing. That Roche ramp is extraordinary. And then in response, someone called Sam, identity unconfirmed, says, really amazing work, everyone. Well done. The Roche ramp up is a one-off, definitely not one to inform targets in May. We used up a large amount of accumulated stock from April, which is a situation we won't find ourselves in again very soon. So what's going on there? He's trying to get this 100,000 target. And instead of saying, look, it's, it's important that we don't massage these statistics. What we want to show is that we genuinely have a capacity to do 100,000 a day. What they've actually done is Roche had a big stockpile. They used them all in a single day because they wanted to get to that 100,000 target. And then you've got, I mean, someone who I presume is an advisor explicitly saying, yeah, but don't think we can do this the next day and the day after and the day after because what we did was we just used up a stockpile, right? That, again, it doesn't seem to me to be people who are seriously interested in building a sustainable testing system to tackle the pandemic, but rather people who really, really um, want to massage some numbers um, so that they can meet an arbitrary target and Matt Hancock can give you the kind of announcement we showed you at the start of this segment. Dahlia, do you think these ones, do you think these are the damning messages that we've seen so far from this from this cache of, uh, of WhatsApp messages? Yeah, I think that this is far more uh, unequivocally scandalous. And I think it's really interesting that this isn't the one that's been hammed up so much by, you know, the lobby media, because, you know, ultimately, this is the kind of behavior that they all engage in. I don't think that they would see this as particularly egregious. Um, and, you know, I think that whole kind of like, we'll see how the bonds of loyalty it really affirms my idea that like our entire like political and media establishment is glued together by like whatever torturous shit these people have done to each other in like Oxbridge, because there is this real sense that like the entire political system is like based on people doing each other favors and, you know, keeping each other's secrets and weaponizing each other's secrets. And there's just like, this is not a functional way to run a country. Um, but in terms of the, the actual like content of the messages, I think it really brings home to me this idea of like the influence, the influencing of politics and of politicians. Like, I really think that increasingly politicians think of themselves much more as influencers than as people who are actually making policy. Um, because, and this is a perfect example of that, you know, this, this obsession with the production of the appearance of a particular reality um, and spin over concrete reality. And obviously this has always been to an extent um, part of politics, you know, what what you what things look like, you know, comms has always been a part of politics. But I think that what we've seen in recent years, and I would argue that actually, you know, this begins with kind of the Alistair Campbell Blair partnership. Um, so, you know, I don't say this from some kind of like centrist, we need to get the grown-ups back in the room, because it's very much the grown-ups that invented this. Um, but I think that it, it in in recent years, it's really become a lot more kind of endemic in particular in both the US and in Britain. You know, you look at the way that Boris Johnson conducted himself and how his priority seemed to be seemed to be the cultivation of his own image and legacy as a kind of Churchillian figure. And to him, what that meant was, you know, speaking in a particular way and presenting a particular kind of cosplay of strength that he thought was associated with, you know, this this 
with Winston Churchill in people's imaginations. Um, you know, you see it with with Liz Truss and her attempt to kind of cosplay Margaret Thatcher and this kind of like this complete subordination of concrete reality and political reality and policy to optics and image um, and to the creation of particular representations of reality. Um, you know, and in many ways, you know, Johnson was kind of, this was what Johnson did in his, in his, in his career before he became prime minister, before he became an MP. Um, you know, he was essentially a professional celebrity. He was like a panel regular. You look at Donald Trump. This is an ex-reality TV star. You know, he's a, produ a product of reality television. And then you look at Hancock going into reality TV after and sort of giving up his, you know, it seemed like being an MP was like a springboard for him to become a sort of generic celebrity. And I just think that that has had like such a corrosive impact on our political sphere and on our political imaginations when you have this kind of sense that you know the logics of like reality tv and 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 that kind of framework is being deployed in policy making which particularly when you're talking about a pandemic where you know quick impactful decisions have to be made where people's priorities really matters has a has a death toll as we've seen i'm going to show you guys one more exchange um, between George Osborne and Matt Hancock. Um, this one is probably even more outrageous. Um, so it starts with, this is from later in the year, by the way. So this is from November 2020. And this is when testing was a bit of a problem. People were struggling to find a test close to themselves. And obviously this was a point when we were getting a, the beginning of a really serious new wave of COVID. Matt Hancock shares in his chat with George Osborne a tweet from Matt Chorley um, from Times Radio. And Matt Chorley has said, George Osborne tells me on Times Radio that Major Blair, Brown and Cameron wrote to George Johnson privately in July about the need to get a grip on testing. And Matt Hancock says to George Osborne, what was this for? George Osborne says, trying to spread the responsibility from you to number 10. I've said it before. Matt Hancock says, okay, but mass testing is going very well. I fear this looks like you asked for me to be overruled. And George Osborne says, no one thinks testing is going well, Matt. He then goes on to say, if I wanted a test today, I can't get one unless I fake symptoms and blocked out name is still waiting. Test results from three weeks ago. We went private in the end. My point has been that Downing Street has not thrown the weight and resources of government behind your heroic efforts. And that's why we entered a second lockdown. And by the way, thousands of civil servants are still working on lorry parks in Kent because this government has no sense of priority. I presume that's a reference to um, the government pouring resources into planning for Brexit. Matt Hancock says, hmm, I don't think this is right, but I can see where you're coming from. So this is the editor of the Evening Standard, very cozy chats with the health secretary talking about how he's trying to shift blame from the health secretary to the prime minister. Now, this is not how the fourth estate is supposed to work, right? There should be some distance between the people who edit the newspapers and the people who make the decisions, the people who the, uh, the newspaper should be reporting on. Here you have very close friends. Uh, George Osborne often thought to be Matt Hancock's mentor here actively using his position as an editor of a newspaper to try and shift blame from his mate to someone else. In fact, to someone who was a bit of a political rival to him. So this is not how journalism is supposed to work. And yeah, it's been exposed. And I'm not sure how much you are going to see this written about in, in mainstream newspapers. I mean, obviously, this was published in The Telegraph. It's not, not a secret. But I'm not sure if this is going to be latched onto as, as strongly as some of the other claims, because so many journalists know that they're you know, kind of guilty of this kind of thing as well. Maybe not as explicit as this, um, but it doesn't seem to me to be particularly out of the ordinary. Next story. 
The contents of Matt Hancock's leaked WhatsApp messages make him seem like a bit of an idiot. But the way they got leaked is perhaps even more embarrassing for the former health secretary. That's because they were leaked by this woman, Isabel Oakshot. She's a right-wing journalist and prominent lockdown skeptic who, for some bizarre reason, Matt Hancock employed to co-write this book. It's called The Pandemic Diaries, the inside story of Britain's battle against COVID. Now, to help write the book, Matt Hancock provided Oakshot with 100,000 WhatsApp messages sent between him and other ministers and officials at the height of the pandemic. Presumably, um, that was after Oakshot, you know, had already got the publicity she wanted from this book. Apparently, she didn't collect a writer's fee, which is, you know, potentially she always had ulterior motives along the way. I've got no idea. I don't want to... Um, implies she does, but it seems all slightly odd. Isabel Oakeshott, in justifying why she leaked this to The Telegraph, explained um, she released the WhatsApp messages to avoid a whitewash in the upcoming COVID-19 public inquiry. The book, co-written with Oakeshott, sold fewer than 4,000 copies in its first two weeks of release or after its release. The great irony here is that Hancock is talking about how, you know, this is not an appropriate way to discuss what happened, to figure out what happened. You know, this should be the realm of a public inquiry. You know, this should be done in a rigorous and neutral way. It shouldn't be hashed out in a, in a newspaper. But that falls apart when you consider how much resources he's put, albeit not very effectively, um, towards laundering his own reputation and laundering his own role um, and trying to essentially rewrite or at least whitewash what took place while he was health secretary. You know, it begins with this book itself. You know, why else are you writing a book called The Pandemic Diaries if not to portray a an image of what happened that is favorable towards you? You know, that's not exactly leaving um, leaving this to a public inquiry and saying, you know, the only appropriate forum for this is kind of an independent investigation. But also, you've been all over the place talking about essentially trying to absolve your own responsibility and talking about how this whole thing operated from your um, from your perspective to try and make people like you, to try and make them forget what happened under your governance um, as health secretary. So you can't, you know, you can't really um, have it both ways. And you know, I'm not necessarily here going to put all my my faith into the integrity of Isabel Oakshaw. I'm not necessarily going to say that her portrayal of how things, what happened is going to be, you know, particularly rigorous. This is not necessarily a very honest or good faith actor in general. Um, I'm sure she did leave out some context, but also Oakshaw is kind of a menace of Hancock's making, you know, like he, he's playing the same game as her. He's just frustrated that she's on a different team now. I suppose what was so stupid is she was always kind of on a different team. She she was throughout the the pandemic a real lockdown skeptic, and that is Matt Hancock's signature policy. So I don't know what he thought he was doing. Um, not a man with much foresight, although that's not what his book says. So as you say, Dahlia, um, you know we're hearing from Matt Hancock and his people now that this is a partial um, expose. We don't see all the messages; we just see some of the messages, and then they say also these messages don't make full sense without seeing all of the other documents. That will all be available to the public inquiry. So wait until the public inquiry. Now that would be somewhat legitimate if Matt Hancock hadn't gone on I'm a Celebrity to try and launder his reputation, hadn't now started a TV company because he's so keen to constantly be speaking to the public about how actually he did the right thing during the pandemic. And especially if he hadn't wrote this goddamn book, which seems to all be about 
making him seem like he always did the right thing. Now, I have to admit, I haven't read this book. Um, I don't have any plans to. Someone who has, though, is Rachel Cunliffe at The New Statesman. This is the headline. Um, this was her review. So before this leak, this was her review of, of, of the book after reading it. Matt Hancock's pandemic diaries are a delusional piece of self-aggrandizing fan fiction. And she says, in these retrospectively constructed entries, Hancock casts himself as the hero of both the COVID crisis and his love life. It's pathetic. And as I say, I hadn't read this book, so I was surprised to hear about this, this point about entries being retrospectively constructed. And this is important because his pandemic diaries are actually all written after the event, but with entries showing the date and then written in the present tense. So it includes Wednesday, the 1st of January, woke up in Suffolk after a quiet New Year's Eve, right? And But that wasn't written on the 1st of January. That was written a few years later, probably by Isabel Oakshot, pretending to be Matt Hancock waking up on New Year's Eve. It's all, all very strange. Um, all very Matt Hancock, actually. On the rewriting of history as well, this is the politically significant bit. Cunliffe writes this. Are we really to believe, for example, that our omniscient protagonist spotted that a mystery pneumonia outbreak in China would be a key public health priority on New Year's Day 2020? Should we take his word that he started thinking about a vaccine five days later? The sustained use of the historical present tense is a trick to mask just how subjective and unreliable the narrator is. So are the tangential asides that try to make so are the tangential asides that try to make the diaries feel more like an authentic depiction of everyday life in all its randomness. So here she includes one of the diary entries. I cannot believe that Andrew Wakefield, the anti-vaxxer, is still in circulation spreading his misinformation or that he used to date the supermodel Elle McPherson. How did that happen? Um, so again, this is Isabel Oakeshott going back and pretending to be Matt Hancock and making lighthearted comments about what was going on at the time. Um, and then Cunliffe goes on to say this. In context, the headline generating revelation that Boris Johnson said the virus would probably go away when initially warned reads like just another attempt by Hancock to show off his superhuman foresight. Now, of course, if you ever needed evidence, if you ever needed evidence, if it wasn't obvious to you already that Matt Hancock doesn't possess superhuman foresight, writing this book, The Pandemic Diaries, with the help of someone who hated his signature policy and then handing her a cache of all his downloaded WhatsApps, well, it hardly makes him seem like a clairvoyant. Next story. Brexit has been hard on a lot of people. From the Eastern Europeans who felt they had to leave the country in the wake of a backlash against them, to the fishermen who have seen their catches shrink and their jobs disappear. Of course, let's not forget the Northern Irish who've been caught in political limbo, threatening their hard-won peace. It's been tough on all of them. But there is a danger that we overlook the real victims of this referendum. I'm talking about the ruling class Brexit headbangers. They've been having pretty public breakdowns and begging us to pity them. Sarah Vine has provided the latest instance of this phenomenon. She's a columnist for the Daily Mail and the ex-wife of Tory cabinet minister Michael Gove. She was an ardent supporter of the Leave campaign, but despite being on the winning side, now she wants your tears. Brexit cost me friendships and my marriage. I pray Rishi can finally end this uncivil war. Now, it's well known that Sarah Vine and Michael Gove had a big falling out with David Cameron and his wife Samantha over Brexit. Cameron had promised an EU referendum in the Conservatives' 2015 manifesto, but he hadn't expected his close friend Gove to campaign for leave. That was a fact that Gove and Vine kept secret from the Camerons. In her article, Vine describes the end 
of that relationship. I should have told David sooner that Michael was going to campaign for leave. Perhaps if he had known from the start, it wouldn't have felt like such a betrayal to him and Samantha. But for me, it was a question of loyalty to my friends or loyalty to my husband. A horrible choice, which I am relieved and sad I will never have to make again. I knew in my heart which way Michael would go. I could have told them, but I didn't. I was afraid of what might happen. In trying to avoid confrontation, I stupidly created more. It's a lesson I won't forget. And she goes on. It's hard to articulate, but I feel that now, perhaps with the end finally in sight, the time is right. Not least because I do think that, in a way, my own turmoil reflects that of many others whose own families have been deeply divided by this issue, and in some cases, even torn apart like mine. Friends who have not spoken for years, relatives at war, neighbours at loggerheads. If Sunak's plan succeeds, there is every chance that some of these rifts may finally begin to heal. For me, sadly, it's too late. I think it runs too deep. The best I can really hope for is, like I said earlier, closure. I was too close to it all, burnt too badly. Ultimately, Brexit cost me not only some of my dearest friendships, but also my marriage. I believe some of that, right? I, I believe, you know, some families and friendships were divided over their views on the EU. It was very divisive. But I'm not sure how much sympathy I have or anyone will have when the people in question are David Cameron, the Remainer who offered a referendum on Brexit just to help his career because he thought he would win it. And Michael Gove, the guy who led the Leave campaign, which was all based on a bunch of lies. I have no sympathy for these people. I don't think many people will. Never mind, though. Let's get back to the pity party. Maybe the, maybe the next part will make you feel bad for Losing my friends was a direct consequence of that vote back in June 2016 and happened overnight. The rest was more indirect and drawn out. It has more to do, really, with my own failings and how the fallout affected my mental health and to a large extent altered my personality irrevocably. Quite simply, I am not the person now that I was before all this began. I struggle to recognise myself at all. So many of the things I believed, the way I understood the world, it's all so different now. It feels like another life another person entirely. The best way I can describe it is the difference between seeing the world through the eyes of a child and seeing how it really is, how people really are. Before Brexit, I had an easy sense of security, a Pollyanna-ish feeling that I belonged and always would. Now, not so much. And Vine ends with this. Truth is, there are some things that simply can't be fixed, that are for a variety of reasons broken beyond repair. When that happens, you can drive yourself nuts trying to glue bits back on, but they never stick. What my family went through as a result of Brexit, what happened with the Camerons and our wider group, how we became the focal point for Remainer anger, how people lost sight of who we really were and saw only what was said and written, the lies that were told, how it all was swept up by social media and spun around into a toxic tornado that seemed to engulf everything. In the end, it was all too much. Now remember, these are the people who in their incredibly uh, civil joyous relationship. Before the heady days of Brexit, they spent six years implementing the violent austerity that killed a hell of a lot of people and made life miserable for millions. But that didn't make it to their cosy dinner parties. So when they were making everyone's life miserable with, with austerity, still everyone at their cosy dinner parties was like, oh, isn't it wonderful? Aren't we doing such a wonderful job? Yes, Sarah Vine, so lovely. So it's Michael Cameron, David Cameron, it's a map for Cameron. Oh, what a lovely bunch of people. And then 
you had this issue which divided the elite and suddenly for the first time ever, um, they meet people who are a little bit angry with them because they live these insular lives where all the people they'd met before that don't really like working class people and are happy to make them poor and miserable um, and are happy to demonize migrants, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. But the moment there was one issue which divided the elite, which by the way, we all had to talk about for years because David Cameron, as I say, uh, brought on that referendum for political, politically opportunistic reasons. We're now supposed to sim have sympathy with these people. Now, I don't. Of course, Ovine isn't the only person looking for sympathy. Northern Ireland Minister and Brexit Spartan Steve Baker appeared on Newsnight after the announcement of the Windsor Framework. Uh, that's Sunak's deal with Ursula von der Leyen. Now, during that interview, this happened. You were effectively excluded from these negotiations. You didn't really know the detail until this morning. Last night, you said you you could have you know you could have been on the verge of resignation. Yes. As Northern Ireland Minister, what do you think about the fact that you were excluded? Well, when I saw the Prime Minister last night, he gave me the good reason why I was not included, which and is? it was a good and noble reason, which I am not in a position to share with you. And I hope people will understand that sometimes these things are necessary. But I actually feel regretful that I was a bear with a sore head over this. He had a good reason. And what's more, he's impressed upon me that actually, in a sense, I was present in the room uh, because he did read the papers that I gave him and they did influence what's been done. And I'm very proud of that. You, you, you're, you're emotional, Mr Baker. Uh, seven years of this cost me my mental health. The beard, the jewellery is about me, my recovery. In November 21, I had a major mental health crisis, anxiety and depression, I couldn't go on. People couldn't tell and made a big keynote speech in the afternoon. But make no mistake, holding these tigers by the tail, Brexit, Covid recovery group, net zero scrutiny group, the tax stuff we did with Conservative Way Forward, took its toll, we're all only human. And it, the way I've led rebellions, no one should have to do. And this is an important moment for me personally, because I can authentically say he's done it. If only everybody will read the text, think seriously about what an amazing achievement this is, what an incredible opportunity it provides for the people of Northern Ireland and actually for the whole of Europe to move beyond this awful populism we've suffered. Just be sensible and grown up. Do the right thing by 1.9 million people. And the ripple effects for everybody else. You bet I'm emotional because this book ends a seven-year chapter of my life which I will be glad to close. Now, I want to be careful here because I, I want to make clear I'm, I'm not going to doubt that he had some, you know, emotional problems during this period. Um, you know, all people in all different situations have emotional problems, whether or not it's because of things you agree with or disagree with. But when you, you listen to that list of, of rebellions which he has fought, which someone shouldn't have to fight. I mean, in a way, he shouldn't have, no one should have to fight them because they're bad rebellions to fight, right? He listed the COVID recovery group, net zero group, Euro research group. So these were all terrible lobby groups, right? So the COVID research group, they were the ones who, you know, basically wanted to not do lockdowns and to kind of take COVID on the chin, very close to the Great Barrington Declaration. So the people who said, let's go for herd immunity early and quick, um, lots more people would have died. The net zero scrutiny group is essentially people saying net zero is too expensive, let's forget about climate change. And then the European research group was obviously they were the people who wanted the hardest Brexit imaginable. So these are three really bad campaigns, three campaigns that are going to cause a lot of pain and trauma if they get their way. I mean, on, on COVID they have, um, sorry, on, on, on Brexit they, they have, on COVID they didn't so much, on net zero hopefully they won't, but if they get their way on net zero, which is to say scrap these targets, a lot more people are going to be living in very difficult situations where they're going to have mental health crises, which, 
you know, I, I hazard to suggest they're probably more serious than people who just had to do a bunch of you know, rebellions in, 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 in Westminster. It just really shows, I think, the complete disconnection with the absolute chaos that ordinary people have been living under for the past several years. You know, in that for, in the in that um, segment from Sarah Vine, you know, she talks about, oh, I'm so glad I'll never have to make that decision again about, you know, whether to stand by my minister husband or my prime minister best friend. You know, it's like the decision, like when we're talking about decisions that have had to be made as a result of this Brexit campaign that have huge gravity. It's like people who felt like they had to leave the country because it wasn't a welcoming place to them anymore. You know, we're talking about migrant workers, many of whom are low wage, who have contributed huge amounts, who have who have made, you know, the particularly like the nightlife and hospitality industry in this um, country possible, feeling like they have to leave because of how hostile. That's a real decision that is you know traumatizing and requires sympathy and Sarah Vine I think has very little sympathy for that considering the paper that she writes for um which has a huge responsibility for creating those um conditions and that disconnection you know it's like for Sarah Vine it seems like the headlines here aren't you know like food shortages and the loss of freedom of movement and how that's torn families and friendships apart in real like concrete ways and the kind of unbearable political stasis that we've been in and the chaos and the spike in xenophobia and all that. No, no, no. Like the headline here is, I realize I don't really like my husband and I fell out with some of my friends. And it's just like, I wish that that was, you know, the main injury that we had all experienced as a result of the last um, few years. But it speaks to the way in which so many, and this, you know, is reflective of like the class position of um, our media um, and particularly prominent people in our media is class shields them from the material realities and outcomes of policy. And this means that essentially they see this all as just like discourse. Like they just see this all as like discourse, like an exchange of opinions. And sometimes that exchange of opinions, you know, becomes like hurts your feelings or it becomes divisive. And it's like, no, this is like, material realities that are that happen as a result of this discourse and of these conversations that you guys are seeing as kind of political um political point scoring and in many ways i think sometimes this idea that like brexit created divisiveness is a really kind of like it's a it, it tells me so much about how you've experienced living in this country because for me what Brexit did was it brought to the fore a lot of contradictions and divisions and to an extent toxicity that has been in the fabric of British life for a really long time now. And that has been felt um, by the sharp edges, um, at, at, you know, at the sharp edges of our economic and political system. You know, migrants that have been routine and refugees that have routinely been thrown under the bus in the name of a broader populism and who have been, you know, portrayed in ways that make them literally unsafe in their workplace and unsafe in the streets, they have a very acute sense that Britain has been divided and has been, has had this problem for a really long time. And it it says so much to me that whilst, you know, Brexit obviously did bring a lot of that to the fore, but it didn't invent that. And I think only if you're really disconnected from the reality of a lot of working class people, can you sit there and say, 
oh, like, you know, Brexit was that like horrible thing that made us all really divided and all, like kind of made things really unpleasant. Thank God we can close the door on that now, you know, to see that as an aberration um, rather than to see that actually it was kind of the coming to a head of issues that had been undergirding British life for a really long time, not least because of the contributions of the paper that Sarah Vine writes for. Next story. It's a topic we've come back to a few times here at Navarra. The Panorama documentary, Is Labour Anti-Semitic? It did huge damage to Jeremy Corbyn's electoral prospects in 2019. And now it's in the news again. That's because a heated row about it has broken out in the pages of The Guardian. So the story here begins with an article written by George Mombio. Its main point is that Starmer's Labour Party is wasting a lot of money and political capital by pursuing a lawsuit against five associates of Corbyn or five staffers um, in Labour when Corbyn was leader. Um, They're accused of leaking an internal Labour report to the press in April 2020, the so-called Labour leaks. But the part of Monbiot's article that's caused the fuss is about one interview in the Panorama documentary. Let's look at the clip in question. It's with Ben Westerman. He was a complaints investigator for the Labour Party and is also Jewish. He's being interviewed by John Ware, the journalist behind the Panorama episode. Ben Westerman received dozens of complaints. While interviewing one member, he was confronted with the very anti-Semitism he'd been investigating. And we finished the interview. The person got up to leave the room and then turned back to me and said, where are you from? And I said, what do you mean, where am I from? And she said, I asked you, where are you from? And I said, I'm not prepared to discuss this. And they said, are you from Israel? What can you say to that? You are assumed to be in cahoots with with the Israeli government. It's this obsession with the fact that that just spills over all the time into anti-Semitism. At the time the documentary aired, nobody knew which party member was under investigation for that, but it later emerged that the person being questioned was Helen Mark. She attended the disciplinary meeting with her friend and fellow Labour member, Rika Bird, who joined her as a witness. Both Marx and Bird are Jewish and both are pensioners. This is what Mombio wrote about the Panorama clip. Perhaps the most decisive blow to Corbyn's leadership was the BBC Panorama programme Is Labour Anti-Semitic? It interviewed a former Labour official who, it claimed, was confronted in a disciplinary hearing by the very anti-Semitism he'd been investigating. He alleged that the woman he was questioning asked him, quote, where are you from? Are you from Israel? Unquote. But the two women in the meeting, both of whom are Jewish, had recorded the conversation with his permission. Backed by their recording, whose veracity no one seems to have disputed, they say it shows that she said something entirely different. Quote, what branch are you in? Unquote. Meaning what branch of the party? And that when he told her he didn't think that was relevant, she said simply, oh, okay. Now, that part of George Monbiot's article was enough to set the panorama producers off. John Ware and the show's producer, Neil Grant, fired off a letter to The Guardian. In it, they said this. He refers to a tape recording which he suggests shows that the account given to Panorama by a Labour Party official investigating allegations of anti-Semitism in Liverpool was wrong in recalling that he'd been asked by a Jewish woman if he was from Israel. In fact, the tape to which Monbiot refers is not definitive of the entirety of the conversation since it stops abruptly, just at the point when the official says he was asked if he was from Israel, having been twice pressed by the woman to say which Labour branch he was from. She did not, as Monbiot writes, simply say 
oh, okay, and leave it at that when he declined to answer her question by saying it wasn't relevant. She persisted, oh, no, it might not be relevant, just thought it might be interesting. So the conversation seemed to be heading in the direction recalled by the official before the tape cuts out. Now, it's unclear why that would be heading in the direction recalled. But in any case, unluckily for the show's producers, that recording is widely available online and it doesn't really seem to abruptly just cut out like they claim. Now, this is a recording of that meeting. It's published by the Canary. We're going to play it right to the end. You'll hear the voice of the investigator, Ben Westerman, and the witness, Rika Bird, is the person asking questions. There's, there's nothing more for me to Okay. I don't know who you want to. No, I'm just um, curious because I haven't been in the Labour Party very long and I've certainly never been to anything like this informal interview before. Um, and it, so I'm just curious about, um, like, what branch are you in? I don't think that's relevant. Oh, OK. I, I hope that's OK. I'm sorry, I, just, I don't think where I'm from is, is at all relevant to, to the investigation. Yeah, I just... I just Misunderstood. I thought the investigation bit about me not being a silent witness was. No, no, it is. It is. You're, you're more than welcome to ask questions, but I, I, I preserve the right to, to not answer them, and I, mm. I feel that's a, that's a question about my personal situation, which I don't think is relevant to the situation in Full Riverside. Oh no, it might not be. It's just, but it might be interesting. I, I'm not prepared mm. to, to discuss my my dress, basically. Um, mm. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming in. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, if you have anything else to add or any questions that, that you, you have regarding anything, please feel free to email me. Um, I'll make a note of what you said about the SAR and I'll pass it on to the data about protection. The... the subject access request. Yeah. SAR. Yeah. And I'll pass it on. Um, I'll just say that, I'll, you know, make sure it, it was done thoroughly. Um, yeah, as I say, I as I said at the beginning, I will... I will um, draw up my conclusions and, and pass them on to the NEC disputes panel in January um, after which we hope to get an AGM sorted as quickly as possible because um, okay. obviously we're outside of the year now so we need to, we need to get that done quickly yeah. um, and move forward Great. so thank you all. that recording doesn't seem to end too abruptly at the point they, they, they talk about so how did Ware and Grant come to the impression that the recording cuts out just after Rika says quote just thought it might be interesting now, that was, it didn't cut out after that. That's what they said in the letter. Now, could it be that they haven't bothered to listen to it all at all? Um, now, I hope so. Otherwise, it seems just like a straight falsehood. The women were interviewed for Al Jazeera's Labour Files. That's a four-part documentary looking into the contents of the Labour leaks. Here's what they said. When he says, um, where are you from? Are you from Israel? That's an absolute lie. I didn't say that. With Westerman's permission, the two women record the interview. The, the, the full recording shows what actually did happen. Curious, because I haven't been in the Labour Party very long, and I've certainly never been to anything like this informal interview before. Um, and it's, so I'm just curious about, um, like, what branch are you in? I don't think that's relevant. Oh, OK. I hope that's okay. I'm sorry, I, just, I don't think where I'm from is, is at all relevant to, to the investigation. I did ask Westerman, what branch are you from? Um, meaning what branch of the Labour Party, because it was a Labour Party internal investigation. The word Israel never came into the exchange between me and Westerman 
at the time, I, I could hardly believe it, but I actually feel very angry about it now because I feel it's so trivialising what is a really important issue. So from John Ware's letter, it seems like he could have watched that, right? But there was a minute after that. So I, I don't see how they think it could have abruptly ended if they'd seen the whole clip. Anyway, um, those two women have now written into The Guardian too. So in response to the letter from John Ware and the programme's producer, they said this, the programme makers continued to defend the sequence on the grounds that the Israel question may have been asked after the tape was switched off. We emphatically deny that this was the case. The tape runs for a further minute of amicable chat about procedural matters. Not only did we not ask the question, it is inconceivable that we would have done so. We are both Jewish pensioners, a fact that Panorama failed to mention. The programme makers have at no stage offered us the opportunity to refute their false allegations against us. We trust that they will now withdraw them and apologise. Now, it seems unlikely they will withdraw them and apologise because, you know, the BBC and the journalists behind this have been doubling down on this for months now. But it does seem really, really bizarre to me, right? So you've got a claim from one individual. So one individual who is working for the Labour Party saying something which I have to say is quite implausible. It seems pretty odd to me that you would have some people in a disciplinary meeting asking someone, are you from Israel, right? I mean, for one, clearly the, the guy was British, right? <laughs> you, you heard his accent in that recording there. You'd have to be a very strange person to ask the person, are you from Israel? So it seems implausible off the face of it. Then we have a recording of the interview where that's not said. And the point at which John Ware seems to think it would be said, we can actually hear that there is, you know, as these two ladies say, amicable chat. So this to me, see, you know, we don't have proof that it didn't happen, but the weight of evidence to me seems to suggest it probably didn't. And the weight of evidence definitely doesn't suggest it did. Yet you have a documentary that used this as one of its core claims. And it wasn't just any old YouTube documentary. This was primetime BBC, which was incredibly damaging to one of you know, to, to the person who wanted to be the next prime minister, to the leader of the opposition. Now, that is really important. And it seems to me there hasn't been any justice done here, right? Everyone is just happy to sweep this under the carpet. And they say, oh, well, this is over. Oh, well, this was a big issue that brought down a party leader, right? And so if one of the core pieces of evidence in that whole row turns out to, you know, at best seem based on, you know, sloppy evidence, seems weak, you had, you know, you've got one witness, two other witnesses there deny it and have, you know, some prima facie evidence that it didn't happen, then that seems to me that it shouldn't have been broadcast on primetime on the BBC. And that we're still seeing them double down when you've got someone like George Monbiot sort of saying, oh, I've looked at all the evidence, this seems implausible. And then you've got a letter essentially from the director and the producer, which I think, you know, does misconstrue the evidence because they say the recording cuts out straight after a part at which it doesn't cut out. It looks very sloppy to me. And this is important, right? Because this, what I think looks like fairly sloppy journalism, had a huge impact when it came to the course of politics in this country and still is accepted by journalists left, right and centre as being a good bit of quality journalism, which was a real, you know, expose. This was truth to power. Um, this was really upstanding journalists standing up for a minority against a sort of brutal and vicious party leadership. Um, when actually it seems like it was kind of just smearing nice old people. Dahlia, thank you for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me, Michael. Um, we will be back tomorrow at 6pm for another stream. Thanks for joining us this evening. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night.
This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.